You are now listening to the November 30th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and Understanding Israel. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. Join our conversation as we discuss practical ways to apply spiritual principles to your everyday life and help you walk your talk one step at a time. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. Hi, Polly. Hi, Alan. So today we're going to be talking about our identity in Christ, Christ as our life. And I always think of Galatians 2.20, that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're going to start out, when Christ who is our life, you also will be revealed in glory. Our, our destination is heaven where he will be. 1 Corinthians 13 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I'll know fully, just as I have been fully known. So Colossians, at one point memorized Colossians 3, says that your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And so you're dead to sin and alive to God. What will you see in your life if that's true? Okay, I there is so much to what you are talking about. This passage of Scripture is the key to freedom. It's like being a bird who's caged by perfectionism and having to thinking that you have to perform in order to be acceptable to God in order to be good enough for God when the reality is that when Christ died on the cross, you died, I died along with him. That's what Alan was saying. I have been crucified with Christ. That's from Galatians. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And then Colossians goes on to say, if then, you have been raised up with Christ. Raised up with Christ? Yeah, I thought I was dead. Yeah, you are dead. You died with Christ. And you also are raised with him. And that fact that it's not just some concept or idea. The truth is that the good news of the gospel is that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that wasn't just a defeat like, oh, the enemy has won, Christ it has died for our sins, and your sins are now buried with him. But he rose. He rose from the dead, which means that in him we have also been raised from the dead. And so we're not living in defeat. We're living in victory, having been raised up with Christ. So that leads, what is your real life in God? What does that look like? And so it looks like you are a saint, not a sinner. Right. 
one of the things that many people do is spend so much time talking about the fact that they're a worm and they're so bad. And I mean, uh, one of my professors that I listened to was Howard Hendricks, and he used to say, if you want to know how significant you are, stick your finger in a glass of water and pull it out, and the hole that is left is how significant you are. So take that by faith. (laughs) Well, right. And you are the righteousness of God in Christ, is what Corinthians says. And you are loved by an infinite God, and you are to set your mind on him and who you are in him rather than who you are in yourself. Right. So the significance of this is that we have victory over our sin. And that doesn't mean that we don't still struggle with our habits and whatever it is that we wrestle with, whether it's impatience or a bad temper or some addictive type of behavior where we, whatever that is, you know, I just have to shop to feel good about myself. I have to spend money to feel good about myself. I have to gamble. I have to drink alcohol. I have to use drugs. Whatever that behavior is, your flesh is always going to have the tendency to want to do that because that's where your sin is. Your sin dwells in your flesh, but you are not your flesh because your flesh was crucified with Christ and you are no longer, that well, sin no longer, no longer has power him. over you. Right. Exactly. So as a believer who understands their identity in Christ, we learn that we don't have to sin. We will. First You'll John still says, be tempted. Well, but First John says, if you say that you have no sin, you call God a liar. So he knows you're going to sin, but we have an advocate and Christ sees us as totally in him. That's right. When God looks at us, he sees the blood of Christ. Just like the when the children of Israel were escaping from Egypt, the angel of death saw the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the houses of the children of Israel and passed over their houses so that they weren't hit with the the final plague, the the slaying of the firstborn. So when when God looks at us, he sees the blood of Jesus covering us, and that is covering our sin, and that is giving us uh, the life of Christ. So Romans chapter 6 and verse 4 says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So we have (laughs) newness of life because of him, not because of what we do. For if we've become united with him in the likeness of of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was, past tense, crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So we don't have to sin. We can choose now. Whereas the natural man who doesn't know Christ has no choice. He is in prison. That's right. So going back to the illustration of a bird inside a cage, that door 
to the cage has been opened. Mm. But the bird can choose to stay in the cage or the bird can fly well, out the door. We used to give the illustration of the big elephants that were tied with a chain around them and they had a big post that was in the ground and so they'd pull, they'd feel that chain and then later they would be trained so much that when they felt that around their leg that when they tied just a little rope around the leg, they'd feel that and they'd think it's the chain and they would stay there. Well, right. And they were trained that way as babies. And so, you know, when they weren't strong enough to actually pull that thing, that stake out of the ground, but as an adult elephant, certainly they have the strength to do it, but they don't know that they can do it. So verse 7 in Romans 6 says, For he who has died is freed from sin. So if we had died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer has master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives He lives to God. And that's really the truth about us. We are to live for God, not for ourselves. We don't have to be chained anymore. That's right. That's the good news of the gospel is that we have been freed from sin and death. So practically, how do we set our mind? Well, the three things I think we need to do is, one, we need to choose to do it. We need to practice choosing, and we need to discipline our mind. I think about when I was in gymnastics, uh, I would have to, learning a back handspring, I would have to learn to be in an uncomfortable off-balance position in order to bend my knees, spring back, and go over the top and be able to not land on my head. And I know that you've thought that many problems have come from (laughs) the fact that I did not choose the right uh, way to do those back handsprings and ended up on my head many times. (laughs) But first, we have to choose. In order to choose, you you know, the will is the key. We used to have a diagram that, you know, uh, it's, it's really tied back to the verse in Galatians that says, if we walk by the Spirit, we won't carry out the desires of the, ch- of the flesh. And so learning, we need to learn to choose truth over feelings, over the way we, I have so many people that say, you know, my mom was this, my dad was this, and that's why I do this now at 50 years old. And I'm thinking, when was the last time you were in your house, in your family's house, with dealing your mom? with these, <laughs> you know, and I, I mean, it, So we learn, we see uh, in our formative years certain things that are habit patterns that we take into our adult years, but we need to choose Christ's life rather than death. And and even Satan's schemes, he's a liar. He is the father of lies. And so we need to choose truth, and then we need to practice choosing. So sometimes we, we just think it's supposed to be, you know, we wave a magic wand and everything turns out. The word says, discipline yourself unto godliness. So there is discipline uh, to choose truth, to practice choosing that truth over and over again till that's the habit of my life rather than just doing what comes naturally. Doing what comes naturally, you know, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its way leads to death. (laughs) So doing what comes naturally will lead to death. 
doing what comes supernaturally, learning that my real life is hidden with Christ in God, that my old life is dead, that I'm a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that I'm a new creature and I need to walk in that new newness and practice that. And then I need to discipline my mind. I need to, in gymnastics, I had to overcome the feeling of pain in order to gain the move or the, the trick that I wanted to get in the gym. And so I had to discipline my mind to sort of block out the pain for the first few times that it would happen or 100 times that it would happen. <laughs> and then eventually one there'd be routine after routine and finally I'd get it. I guess it was the accumulation of learning or whatever. Uh, but there were times where we spent hours and days in the gym and just wouldn't get the move. And then one time it clicked. And many times that's what goes on in the spiritual realm. We need to learn to discipline and do the right thing, even if we don't feel like it. If I don't feel good, doesn't mean I don't do the truth or what God tells me to do. Well, and it is a daily choice. It Those are moment-by-moment decisions. Um, I often will tell people that no matter how spiritual I am, no matter how much praying I have done in the evening, no matter how much focus I have had on the Lord before I've gone to bed, when I wake up in the morning, I am right back in my flesh. I don't know if it happens to you that way, but I know that every morning when I wake up, the first thing I think about is myself, how tired I am, how I don't want to get out of bed, or how I have all of these things to do, and oh, I'm, I didn't have a good night's sleep, and, or whatever it is, I'm absorbed in myself, and I need to make a conscious decision that this day belongs to God, mm. that I have to choose to let Christ be my life today. That if I want to do anything of spiritual significance as his child, I need to give myself over to him. I need to ask him to take control. I need to remember that I died on the cross with Christ and that I am raised up with Christ and that my life is hidden with Christ in God and that he has given me the victory. And this is not something that takes hours to do. It can happen in just a few moments of recognition of these facts. It's, but it's a daily practice. It's something that I need to do to set my mind on him, to die to myself, to allow his life to fill me, to invite the Holy Spirit to take over and guide me and empower me throughout the day for the things that God has for me. So we're raised up with Christ, and the key word here is keep seeking the things above. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So it does take turning our heart over to the Lord. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first the kingdom, his kingdom, and his righteousness, and then all the other things will be added to you. So seeking his kingdom and who he is and his righteousness. 
And then Philippians 4.8 says, finally, brethren, what Paul is talking to the Philippians while he's in jail and says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Well, you're right. And that goes back to choosing and practicing choosing and disciplining your mind. You have to make a conscious decision to seek God, to look for him, to find what he wants for you in every situation that you face throughout the day. And also to be aware of the kinds of thoughts that are running through your mind. What, where am I going with this? Am I getting absorbed in myself? Am I allowing myself to fall back into old patterns of thinking? Am I feeling sorry for myself? Am I feeling upset and angry over something that happened? Am I dwelling on things that are not pleasing to God or am I disciplining my mind to think about, as Philippians 4, 8 says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is, of, is pure or lovely or of good repute or excellent or worthy of praise, which all has to do with God himself and his word. Dwell on these things. Think about these things. Allow these things to fill your mind rather than letting your your mind run away with itself. Right. I think it's like a thoroughbred in a horse race. I mean, he has a bit, a bridle, a jockey. The guy has a crop. Some people would say, oh, that's so bad that you have that. <laughs> but in order for that thoroughbred to go straight down the track and not cause havoc with the other, I mean, in the Kentucky Derby last year, the, the horse went into the wrong lane and almost uh, – People who are in the know and jockeys who are uh, in the know just said there could have been a pileup of three or four horses and could have broken their legs or killed them or whatever. So the importance is having that bridle helps keep the horse in check to be able to go down the path. And um, the word talks about he is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. And that as we identify with Christ and understand our real life is hidden with him in God and fill our heart and heads with that, we seek him with all our heart and then we do things that look like him. Well, that's so true. And, and the, the picture of a little jockey, I mean, they're just little guys. And, and, and that's part of being a jockey is being a certain weight that's very light and easy for this powerful racehorse to carry. So you've got this animal that has all of this power that's being guided by, you know, a really small person sitting on its back. And we have all the power of God and all of the Holy Spirit and all the power of the creative uh, force that that brought the universe into existence at our disposal. And we're just that small person who has the ability to say, yes, God, fill me, use me, or to say, nah, today I'm going to just tough it out. I'm going to do it my way. Hmm. And it's our choice. And we need to choose to recognize that we died with him, 
we're raised up with him, and we want him to fill us and use us the way he wants to. So I think next time we'll talk a little bit more about our identity in Christ and how we walk this life out. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This is Alan and Polly Heller asking you to keep walking your talk. This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org. I'm feeling so small Standing here weeping As I'm coming clean Of the secrets I'm keeping Cause I've caused so much pain To the ones I love the most And I'm falling apart As I carry my heart to your throne I am completely surrendering Finally giving you everything You're my redeemer I run to the cross Because you Nothing I own Treasures I held Just weighed down my soul There's nothing left Inside of me But I'm longing for you
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary PHX in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is power failure. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 9. And our text today describes one of that happened 2,000 years ago. And as a result of this power failure, a young boy's life was almost lost. Let's look at Mark chapter 9 and look at verses 14 through 29. I want to read the incident. It's a little long, but I think it, it just grips us, your attention. Look at verse 14. And when they came, that's Jesus, nine disciples, they saw a crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? What are you arguing with my disciples about? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. He can't speak. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able And he answered them, Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this Kind cannot be driven out except by prayer. This account is uh, told in all three synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And usually Matthew's gospel has the longer accounts of something. You get a lot more detail from Matthew. And Mark is short and fast, right? But this time, it's the opposite. Mark has this long, interesting, full of details account where Matthew's is really short. So verse 14 begins, three of the disciples coming down the mountain with Jesus, and they saw a great crowd around the nine disciples that had been left behind arguing with the scribes, and or the scribes arguing with them. When Jesus returned, he had been at the Mount of Transfiguration, and with, as I said, Peter, James, and John, and... When he arrived, 
the crowd saw him, verse 15 says, and they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Now, there's something here that's really easy to miss. I don't want you to miss it. And probably we've read right over this as we do a lot of things in the Bible. You just read over and we don't catch it. So I really want us to see this. It's real important. The New Living Translation, verse 15 says, When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe. They were astonished. They were overwhelmed. What is, we use the word awe, but how do we use the word? We say something was what? Awesome, right? Well, Jesus, think, what is so awesome about this? Jesus is just arriving. All he's doing is he is coming into town and he hadn't taught. Think about it. He hadn't taught anything. He hadn't done any miracles yet, right? And yet everybody's amazed when they see him. What is so amazing about that? Well, something had happened. There was something different about Jesus. What was different about Jesus? I want you to hold your place here in Mark chapter 9. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 17. This is something that happened just prior to him coming to see these people. I want to go to Matthew's account of it because for the benefit of our study today, Matthew chapter 17, verses just 1 and 2. This is what happened just prior to Jesus coming into this town. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the what? Sun. And his clothes became white as light. What is going on? This is what I believe is happening, and we could easily miss this. When Jesus came down off the mountain, there was still kind of the afterglow on his face. There was something different about his countenance. There was still the residual effects of the transfiguration on Jesus' face. The Amplified Translation puts it this way, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus returning from the holy mount, his face in person still glistening, they were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him and greeted him. I mean, can you imagine what this must have been like? We're told that when Moses was on the mountain and he received the law of God, you remember that? Exodus chapter 34. When he was up there, there in the presence of God, when he came down the mountain and he he stood before the people, his face was so bright that it was either hand sunglasses out to all the people of Israel or cover his face. So he put a veil over his face. Real thing. Because the glory was still, that afterglow was still on his face. But it scared people. It scared people. In Exodus 34 it says, but the people were afraid to come near him. The glory that was still on his face was the glory of God, but in the giving of the law. And what the law does is it points out sin, and that's rather intimidating, wouldn't you say? But when Jesus comes down another mount, this time, rather than scaring people, there is still the afterglow on Jesus' face, but it is not that of the law. It is grace and truth. And the people we just read, they ran up to Jesus, didn't they? They were amazed, astonished at what they saw, but it didn't frighten them. They ran up and greeted him. Isn't that cool? So, verse 14, 
Jesus, when he arrived, noticed something was going on. What's this all commotion going on? Verse 14, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd and saw the scribes arguing with his disciples. So Jesus, in verse 16, says, what are you arguing about with them? And then this man came forward. We've read it, verses 17 and 18. He came forward. He seemed very desperate and frustrated and explained to Jesus what had gone on. He says, I brought my son who's demon-possessed and he's mute and, you know, the demon is abusing him and doing horrific things to him. And I came to you, but you weren't here, so I came to your disciples and uh, they weren't able to cast out the demon. And so apparently the scribes, religious leaders, were pointing out the disciples' failure, of course. They had come from Jerusalem to scrutinize Jesus' ministry to see if there was something wrong with Jesus' teaching or ministry so that they could arrest him and basically take him down. So they were doing that. Here are the disciples. They failed to exercise the demon. Now, it's not putting the demon on a treadmill. You understand? That's not the exercise we're talking about. So they failed uh, to cast a demon out of the man. And so the scribes and Pharisees are saying, well, that's because you didn't have the authority to do that. This is all an authority issue here. They are saying, you didn't have the authorization to cast that demon out, to perform that exorcism. And that's why that demon did not come out. You see, according to the religious leaders, only they could do this kind of thing. You had to have authority given to you by them. And they, their form of exorcism was very complicated, long and drawn out. And they would quote people. They would use incantations, special scriptures. They would, you know, do... Sometimes they would have objects they would use. It was a long, involved process. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But they believed they were only ones who had authority. And so the disciples not being able to do this shows you don't have authority. Well, what's the problem? Who gave the disciples authority? Jesus. So they're basically saying, you not being able to do this proves that Jesus really doesn't have authority. It's an authority issue here. And so Jesus shows up. Let me just say this. It's interesting that the religious leaders who claim to be close to God and the spokesman for God, they don't lift a finger to try to help this kid be delivered from this terrible demon possession. Instead, they just they argue a debate about theology while this kid is suffering terribly. And you know, it's true of this in our society today often. People argue, they debate, and while all around them, the world is dying. Now, I just want you to be very, very careful before you take up some cause and plant it on a hill and it's a hill to die for, before you do anything like that, you count the costs and you make sure it is that important. And not just the latest thing online that other people are talking about or you know, trying to bring up. You better make sure, because people all around are dying. Some things are not major things that Christians argue about. You understand? Not all doctrine is something that Christians have to all be on the same page. 
I mean, there are basics that we all have to believe. There are other things that you're not going to be lost if you don't believe in the rapture, okay? You won't have that special neighborhood in heaven. So when Jesus arrived, the nine disciples had to be really ashamed. They had to be confused, really frustrated, you know, not able to answer these theological questions. You know how that feels. It is significant that disciples had been very successful in the past, by the way. Hold your place again in nine and go back to Mark chapter 3. And we're going to just look at the 14th and 15th verses. It says, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have what? Authority to cast out demons. The disciples had authority. It was Jesus' authority to cast out demons. And it, they had been very successful in that. When you go to, forward to chapter 6, here of the Gospel of Mark, and look at verse 7, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them, here it is again, authority over the unclean spirits. So how successful were they? Look at Mark chapter 6, look at verses 13 and 14. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is how successful King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Okay, they had been successful, if you could put it that way. But this time they were helpless, and their religious teachers were putting the disciples to public shame and gloating over all of this. Jesus was very displeased about what had happened as we go back to our passage in Mark 9. And he was very displeased for several reasons. Look at verse 19. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus wasn't happy. Jesus was exasperated with the religious leaders and with his disciples, though for different reasons. He's exasperated with the religious leaders because of their unbelief, because of their hatred towards him, and their hardened hearts. He's irritated with the disciples because his disciples had again misplaced their priorities. The nine disciples had gotten into doctrinal arguments with their opponents. The priority, of course, was ministering to a boy who had been tortured by a demon. That was the priority, right? Yet even more at this point, ministering to a brokenhearted, desperate father who came to them for help and was grieving because now he believes there's no hope for a son. Their priorities all wrong. The disciples had a power failure, and they didn't even know it. Now, one of the surprising characteristics about the Gospel of Mark is how it portrays Jesus' 12 disciples. It doesn't portray them well. All of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all of them point out the disciples' flaws, but not in detail like Mark's Gospel does. Why? Well, probably to make sure that we understood that God can use frail people like them, or us, right? Also, probably to give us examples of what not to do and how not to follow Jesus. I mean, you can learn through great examples, and you certainly can learn from bad examples. 
And so Jesus, in effect, in verse 19, is saying, how many times do I have to go over these things with you? That's basically what he's saying to his disciples there. How many times do I have to go over these things with you? How many of you have ever said that to your kids at any time? Let me see. Come on. Now, that's a very parental thing to say, isn't it? How many times do I have to tell you these things? It's also a very loving thing to do, right? I don't say it because I hated my kids. I said it because I love my kids and I'm concerned about my kids. And so when Jesus says this to his disciples, he's not condemning them, but he is aggravated with them. He's angry with them. How many times am I going to have to tell you these things? Now let's go back to verse 17, Mark chapter 9, end of it, and let's see what Jesus does to straighten this out. Evidently, the father thought that Jesus was in the area, and so he brought his only son to Jesus, but Jesus wasn't there, we know. And Jesus' nine disciples were there instead. Surely he's thinking at least they could help them. Him, verse 17, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. He's disappointed. File this away. He was disappointed by people. There are people, when you come to them with your problems, they aren't able to help you. And it's very disappointing. You've gone to other Christians, and you've brought to them a problem, and they haven't helped you at all. And maybe that's kind of affected the way you think about what Jesus might be able to do for you. I don't know. But I love Jesus' response in probably of all that I was studying for hours with this. The one thing that jumped out of, at me more than anything was not the part about the disciples' failure or the argument or the authority or the actual the boy or the father. You know what really jumped out of me? Is what Jesus asked the father to do in verse 19, the end of verse 19, bring him to me. Everything else has failed. You're desperate, you're frustrated, you're discouraged, you feel hopeless. And this will be Jesus' fourth and final exorcism. Verses 20 through 22, and they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, the demonic spirit just went crazy, freaking out. When the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And this boy's symptoms were so severe. Because of the demon possession, he couldn't speak, he couldn't hear. He had seizures of throwing down onto the ground. His body would go rigid. He would foam at the mouth. His teeth would grind. The Greek word for is grinding, so you could hear him, his teeth grind. The demon would try to throw him into fire or drown him in water. Can you imagine what it would be like to be that father looking out for your little boy, constantly wanting to protect him? In verse 21, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to the... And he says, well, since childhood. And the father said, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Again, I think due to the failure of Jesus' disciples, maybe he thought that Jesus might not be able to do anything. Jesus might want to do something, but not able to do something. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us, help us. If you can, what a crazy thing to say to Jesus, amen? If you can, 
You're talking to the one who created the universe with words. He spoke. He used words. That's it. And everything came to be. If you can do anything. You remember back in chapter 1 of Mark, verse 40, a leper came to Jesus and he said, Lord, if you're willing, you can heal me. And Jesus said, I am willing. Be healed. He came, if you're willing, this guy is, if he can do anything, could you help us out? Now, of course, he doesn't have the full insight into who Jesus is, but, but Jesus is sharp in his response to this. Okay, Jesus doesn't take that very well, okay? What Jesus do is he repeats it, but he puts it back on the guy. He says, if I can do anything, he says, you're telling me if I can do anything, if you would only believe. All things are possible. One scholar paraphrases what Jesus said to him. So far as your if you can is concerned, I tell you that all things are possible to the one who believes. Or another paraphrases it this way. As regards your remark about my ability to help your son, I tell you everything depends upon your ability to believe, not on mine to act. All things are possible for the one who believes. Now, Someone has said this affirmation does not mean that faith can accomplish anything, but those who have faith will set no limits to the power of God. It's not a matter that faith can accomplish anything. You hear the prosperity teachers, this prosperity gospel says, they pull this out of context and they say, if you can believe, you can have it. Anything is possible to those who believe. And they take this verse out of context, they apply it, so people say, I believe I could have a Rolls Royce. Anything is possible to those who believe, I believe. I claim it. The problem is the faith teachers need to be sentenced to like four or five years in seminary, taught how to interpret the Bible, taught Greek and Hebrew so that they know what they're talking about. You can't take these verses out of context and build a theology that, by the way, disappoints most people because I don't know anybody has ever gotten a Rolls Royce that has believed for it. Do you? You can't take things out of context. Everybody understand that? When you do that, you can hurt people. It can cause spiritual abuse. No, this means all things are possible for one who believes. This means that those who have faith will set no limits to the power of God. Amen? God can do anything, of course. What does God want is the important question to ask. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And the father's desperate response to Jesus here in verse 24 is such an encouragement for those of us who go through terrible situations. I mean, how many of us have not kind of cried out the same thing as that dad, right? I believe, help my unbelief. How many of you have basically had that kind of a God experience, right? I believe, I do believe, but help my unbelief. I just got tiny faith. Help me, God. In Jesus, verses 25 through 27 Jesus saw that the crowd was coming. He's probably thinking, not another crowd. It's not time for one, okay? He doesn't have time for a crowd. I mean, it wasn't crowd teaching constantly, okay? And this was not the time or the place. So Jesus does this quick. He saw a crowd coming, so it doesn't say quickly, but he needs to do this fast. So what does he do? 
he just real fast, he says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. That's authority. Would you agree? And the unclean spirit left. That's authority. Now, that's kind of like the undoing. Yeah, my disciples, they messed up this time, but it's my authority anyway. And the kid was delivered. You remember the story. Jesus raised him up. And now, being in the glory of God is now to confront the kingdom of darkness. The glory of God and now the devil, right? And Jesus is victorious. He is ruler over all the power of darkness. Amen. Now, in verses 28 through 29, this is the, I think these verses have, you know, made us all kind of scratch our heads a little bit. Hmm, what does this mean? And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, nobody really knows what Jesus means here. You say, what do you mean? He says, except by prayer. Do you think the disciples didn't pray when that child came to them? Do you think they really didn't pray? Do you think that when they initially went to cast the demon out like they always had and it didn't happen that they didn't then pray? Of course they prayed. I mean, I would be so surprised if they didn't pray. I think what was going on was they hadn't had a prayerful life. I think, hey, Jesus has gone for a while, you know, hey. We don't have to stay as close to God. You know, it's interesting with the disciples how they walked with God, but they didn't at the same time, right? They walked every day with Jesus. They were close to Jesus physically, but they weren't close to Jesus spiritually yet. And there's something like that going on here, okay? They have, they've missed it. And Jesus is saying, hey, you've got to have a closer walk with me. You've got to depend on prayer more. I'm not exactly sure how it works. You know, maybe I should be more clear. But truly, I think it's a little more the Lord is saying, this has to do with your spiritual walk. And you were closer to me back in where we read they had authority and they were doing all this stuff and demons were leaving. Hey, you had a closer walk with me then than you're having right now, guys. You think that might be what Jesus is saying? I want to move the disciples out of the way for a minute. And I want to focus on us. Are we experiencing a power failure? They did. How about us? I want to ask you to ask yourself some very important questions. I think I have a little, my short list, six. Some really important questions. I want you to ask, am I prone to step into arguments? I think that's a lesson we learn, right? Well, are you prone to step into arguments? The next thing is, am I undisciplined in my prayer life? It's a very important thing. Am I? Do I give prayer a priority in my life? Because it seems there is a relation between prayer and power. Am I prone to thinking that learning some kind of a spiritual technique can do God's work? Maybe the disciples thought, you know, if we say the words in Jesus' name, something's always going to happen. And, and Jesus is saying, no, you got to be walking with me. It's not a magic formula. I think involved in all of this would be the question, am I walking closely with God? Hey, that has to do with prayer. It has to do with spending time listening to Jesus as he speaks to us through his word. And the last two are very important. And I find it make me admire the disciples a lot. And the question I would ask myself, 
and want you to ask yourselves, am I eager to find out why I failed? Don't you admire them for that? Don't you admire that they talk to Jesus and they say, why could we not cast it out? What did I do wrong, Lord? You know what? I think Jesus is happy to hear us come to him. And we ask, hey, what went wrong? And then ask ourselves, do I learn from my mistakes? What went wrong? What do I learn? Before you zip your Bibles or close your apps, I want to bring two encouraging things your way. The first is that little, those four words that encouraged me so much, where Jesus said to them, bring him to me. How many of our burdens, our worries, our problems would be lifted if we would bring them to Jesus? What's the thing you hauled in here? What's the thing that you wake up in the morning dreading or, or you're worried about? Bring it to Jesus. Bring him to me. See, that tells me Jesus wants. He wants us to bring this stuff to him. He wants to be involved in the lifting of our burdens. Cast all your cares upon him, the Bible says, because he cares for you. How many of these things that we are so burdened with would be lifted if we would bring them to Jesus. And you know, if you have faith, you will set no limits on God. We might have a weak faith, but we have a strong Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, in your word, we find such encouragement. Jesus, we are so thankful for the way you lived on this earth, for the things you did what they show about you, what they show about us, what they reveal about your power and your love and your concern. We thank you for your authority over all things, that you really are Lord of all. We are grateful that we can bring our stuff to you and you're able to take care of our problems, our cares, our burdens. We want to learn the lessons we want to know why we might have that power failure in our lives. Give us, please, clear insight into these things we ask through your name. And everybody said a great big, amen.
You're there in the feast Your faithfulness will always shine Now every blessing still to come Let this be our song It is Ministries is now starting a new Japanese program and is able to spread the gospel in Japanese. If you know anyone that is fluent in Japanese, please let them know of this program. We hope that they will be able to hear the gospel of Jesus through our CDs. If you are interested, please contact us at our office. Our office number is 602-866-8999. And our email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Thank you. Coming up next is Understanding Israel. everyone, and welcome to another program in our series, Understanding Israel. I am your host, Susan Holtgrew. Over the past several weeks, we have studied the Feasts of Israel, mandated by God, the history of each feast, how the Jewish people celebrate them, 
and how we as believers can celebrate them and look to the future to the return of our Savior and King. With that in mind, we are going to look at the importance of Israel in prophecy. If you want to know what time it is, you look at your watch or phone. If you want to know what time it is on God's calendar, you look at Israel. Let me explain. About a third of the Bible is about prophecy. Prophecy concerning the coming Messiah, of how the world will be in the future, and the second coming of Jesus. Some of these prophecies have already come to pass, such as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God tells Satan, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Her seed, meaning the virgin birth of Jesus, and how Jesus will crush Satan, which he did with his finished work on the cross. Isaiah chapter 53 speaks of the suffering servant in foretelling the life and death of Jesus, and Psalm 22 describes crucifixion hundreds of years before it was invented by the Assyrians, and what Jesus' thoughts would have been while he hung on the cross. But Israel has an important role to play as well. It started with Abraham and Sarah and their faithfulness to God as he chose them to begin a nation that the Savior of the world would be born in. Their son Isaac was the father of Jacob, whom God renamed Israel, and his sons were the fathers of the twelve tribes of Israel, their father Jacob. These tribes grew and flourished. Sometimes they followed God's commands and ways, but most of the time they turned away from God and worshipped false gods. Finally, they wanted a king of their own, and God gave them Saul. Saul made some very bad decisions, and God eventually replaced him with David. After David's son Solomon died, the kingdom split, and from that time on, the northern kingdom was Israel and the southern kingdom was Judah. The northern kingdom had many evil kings and never followed God again, so God allowed the Assyrians to capture the Israelites of the northern kingdom and scattered them throughout the Assyrian Empire, which at that time covered land from the Persian Gulf to Egypt to present-day Turkey. The southern kingdom of Judah had nine kings who followed the commands and laws of God. The rest did not, and eventually God allowed them to be captured by the Babylonians. King Nebuchadnezzar, for the most part, kept all the Israelites in one place, and after 70 years of captivity, God moved in the heart of King Artaxerxes and allowed for some of the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem to build the wall and rebuild their temple. That would be the second temple. Then most of the Israelites moved back to Jerusalem and the Judean region and recommitted themselves to God and again grew and flourished. Now let's fast forward to Jesus' time. Just after Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44, we read, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. 
for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Then in 70 AD, Romans came and besieged Jerusalem and tore down the temple, and to this day not one stone stands upon another. All that is left is the western wall. Over the next few hundred years, there were pockets of rebellion, but they were soon crushed, and Rome renamed the area Palestine, the Roman name for Philistines, which have been the Israelites' enemy in ancient times. Remember David and Goliath? Goliath was a Philistine. Over the next several hundred years, the area of Israel was mostly desolate, with a few nomadic Arab tribes here and there. Mark Twain visited the area in 1867, and while riding on horseback through the Jezreel Valley, he wrote about it, saying, There is not a solitary village throughout its whole extent, not for thirty miles in either direction. There are two or three small clusters of Bedouin tents, but not a single permanent habitation. One may ride ten miles hereabouts and not see ten human beings. He continues, Of all the lands there are for dismal scenery, I think Palestine must be the prince. Can the curse of the deity beautify a land? Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. Over it broods the spell of a curse that has withered its fields and fettered its energies. Now that we have established a brief history of Israel, let's look at a few prophecy passages regarding this small nation. Ezekiel is a book of many prophecies, but let's take a look at just one of them for today. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God is speaking about renewing Israel for his name's sake, and in verses 33 through 38, Ezekiel says, Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say, This desolate land has become like a garden of Eden, and the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. Thus says the Lord God, This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So will the waste cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Since Mark Twain's observation of Israel in 1867, the Jewish people slowly started moving back into the region, and the region began to flourish. Now let's move into chapter 37, where Ezekiel talks about the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, starting in verse 1 and ending in verse 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them, 
round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Verse 11 continues, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope has perished, we are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord, when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life, and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. Then God goes on to explain that Israel and Judah will be united again, and in verses 21 and 22, God said, Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them and they will no longer be two nations, and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. Then on May 14, 1948, the nation of Israel was born, just as Ezekiel had prophesied from God that it would, and today Jews from all over the world are coming back to live in the land of Israel. This tiny nation that is the size of New Jersey is the eighth most powerful nation in the world, and has a population of just over 8 million Jewish people, and it is all the work of God. Well, our time is up for today, but there are still many things I would like to share with you about the importance of Israel in prophecy. So until next time, God bless you all, and goodbye. Jesus
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.